listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Today's an important broadcast for the Victory Tribe. Um, there's there's um, so much bad Bible teaching <laughs> going through the world. Like, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. And it's because, truly, people don't understand uh, how to study the Bible. Even preachers don't fully understand how to study the Bible. But uh, I love every one of you in the Victory Tribe, and I know you're hungry. I get messages all the time. We get messages to the ministry. Uh, we know that the, you guys are, are, are hungry for not only the word, but to study the word. You wouldn't be on here every day if you weren't hungry for the word of God. And um, we get messages about that. I have people ask me, uh, even when I'm in services, they ask me questions about Bible study uh, and things like that. Today, I want to give you um, five effective ways that you as a Christian um, should be studying the Bible. You know, I have people ask me like, you know, how, especially new believers, how do I read the Bible? How do I go through it? I mean, do I start in Genesis and end in Revelation? I mean, how do I, how do I effectively study the Bible? And, um, you know, it's interesting because the Bible's not necessarily meant to be read like a normal book, meaning from the front to the back. Um, you won't mess up if you start somewhere else in the Bible. In fact, I encourage new believers to start in the gospel of John. You know, so it's important to understand that there's different ways you can study the Bible. Hey, Caitlin, today I want to give you five methods that you should be using. And these are very important because I'm going to break them down too as I'm talking about them. So take a minute to share the broadcast. It's important for every one of the Victory Tribe to get this in their spirit. Um, Erica said, I finished my 90 days in 105 days. <laughs> hey, that's not actually bad. Only 15 missed days is not bad at all. You did a great job. And by the way, everybody that joined us at the beginning of this year, first quarter, reading the Bible through um, in 90 days, I commend you, even if it took 105 days. I mean, that's, Erica could probably tell you, that's probably the fastest that she's ever read the Bible through. And for many of you that, that joined us, it's probably the fastest that you've ever gone through the Bible. And so I commend you. And, but don't stop there. You know, we got through the Bible, but this is a year we're going to run like never before. And uh, it means we're going to have to stay in the word, stay in prayer, stay in fasting, stay hungry. And uh, Caitlin said, your new beginners postcard helped me uh, get better, get a better understanding of Bible study. And that was a reading plan that we uh, put out that uh, we give to people for free to just show you how we, you know, we recommend even new believers start reading through the Bible. But I want to give you five, uh, effective ways you and very useful ways to study through the Bible. Um, some people think there's only one, just read it and understand it, but there's different ways you can do it. And these will help you because when you, um, employ these five different methods, you actually get something different out of the Bible with each of these methods, which is the point, right? You want to go through the scripture and get the most out of God's word that you can get. Um, Paul, the apostle, told Timothy, his son in the gospel, that uh, he should study to show himself approved by God. 
a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed doing what rightly dividing the word of truth, properly, uh, interpreting and teaching the word of truth. So when we look at that command from Paul to Timothy, you can get a couple of things out of it. Number one, um, that we have to understand that there is such a thing as sound doctrine, right? You know that you can rightly divide the word. You can wrongly divide the word. There's false teaching. There's true teaching. And it's important to understand that it's the Bible's not subjective, right? It doesn't just mean whatever we want it to mean. That's a mistake to think like that. Um, however, in this postmodern society that we live in, uh, people are trying to make it like that. You know, well, that might mean that to you, but here's what it means to me. The Bible's not subjective. It, it doesn't mean just one thing to one person, another thing that there's no solid, you know, point that the Bible's trying to make. No, the Bible is not subjective. Uh, the Bible, uh, has an actual point that it's trying to get across in each passage. And I'm going to teach about that a little bit today as we go through the five methods, because just having that understanding alone should make you seek out what is the Bible really trying to say? What's the author saying? What is the Holy spirit trying to say by inspiring this author in this passage? So it's important that we understand that. And then Paul told Timothy, uh, this, he said, um, that you've got to study. So there should be study in every Christian's life. It shouldn't be just on Sunday morning when we go to church and the pastor guides us through his message, his sermon. We need to do that faithfully, but throughout the week, we should be studying the word of God. So study to show yourself what approved. So there, there's a certain type of diligence, right? That's approved by God. God's not pleased if we're not diligently seeking him, right? The Bible teaches that, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And, uh, what does it say? Those that come to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of who those that diligently seek him. So it pleases God when we diligently seek him. And one of the ways that we seek him diligently is through his written word. And Paul told Timothy, he said uh, that you could, you need to study to show yourself approved by God. So God approves of diligent study. God approved. I want you to put that in the comments right off the bat. God approves of diligent study. God approves of diligent study. Isn't it amazing to you that even when Paul was in prison, he was calling for people to bring him his parchments and his notes and all of the stuff that he used to study. You know, Paul was like, yeah, I'm in prison, but I'm not, I'm not going to stop studying because I'm in prison. He didn't stop writing letters and encouraging, preaching and teaching, even from prison. And so God approves of diligent study. He wants his people to study the word diligently. And that's what we're encouraging you to do. But how do you go about that? You know, don't just say, well, study the Bible. How, how do you study the Bible? And this broadcast is going to show you five ways that will really, really help you. Maybe when I go through these, you'll be like, yeah, I've used that before. And then some of these, you might be like, man, I've never thought of that before. I should do it that way. I should study the Bible that way. And so, um, I'm not just going to give you the ways, but I'm going to try to give you some tools as well that will help you accomplish these types of Bible study. There's my friend, Ben Fole. Love you, man. Um, and so I want to I give you these. So let's, let's break down and we'll kind of go through these uh, one by one, and then we'll, we'll look at these um, 
We'll, we'll look at these practically. You know what's nice for us too? Is that, uh, especially in the United States, we have so many uh, free tools to study the Bible. It, it's really mind-blowing. It, it's extremely mind-blowing actually that we have, especially through the internet and other things, we have so many free tools to do deep, deep Bible study. You know, I was, um, I was blown away. I went to, I went to Washington DC. And if you guys ever get a chance to do this, absolutely do it. Take the chance and do it. Um, go to the museum of the Bible in Washington DC. Um, the same family that owns Hobby Lobby, the green family, uh, bought up like a full block of property in Washington DC and, uh, put out the museum of the Bible, funded it. It's one of the most amazing places I've ever been as a Christian. And I'm not saying that lightly. I was like, I could spend a whole week there and still want to spend another week. There's so much. It's like three floors of, uh, of, of things about the Bible. There's tours, there's, there's shows that you can sit in on. They take you through, like literally they take you through a, uh, room by room video interactive tour of how we got the Bible and things like that. Uh, they have, they will actually have their, uh, I believe it, it's a rabbi that's by hand copying Torah scrolls from one to the other. I mean, all kinds of things. They even have a, a 3D, like a 3D, no, it's actually 4D because they blow the wind on you and everything, uh, ride where they fly you through Washington, D.C. and show you everywhere in the city, Bibles, uh, like verses of scripture are on monuments and in buildings. And it's, um, it's amazing. And, and if you go into the sections where they have Bibles from history, they have like uh, the Geneva Bible and one of Martin Luther's Bibles and, uh, you know, all these, they even have Dead Sea Scrolls there, um, all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. Like it was amazing. Um, and then you go into this one room and this room blew my mind because you go into this one from DC, from West Virginia, uh, it'd be like four hours, maybe Linan, maybe like four hours or so, maybe about, about that. But, um, you'd have to leave early in the morning, get to get back. But I go into this room and they, they have a room where there's Bibles. It's like a, it's almost like a circular room and on the walls, Hey Rodney, there's Bibles and there's different colors. So they're color coded. And, and, and when I started studying it, what it meant, um, it was cool because one color showed um, Bibles that have been fully translated in this particular language. And it shows the languages that the Bible has been fully translated in. Then there's another color, which is maybe that Bible has only been translated. Just the New Testament alone is all that that language has. And then you've got another color where they say, um, these Bibles, the, or excuse me, these languages, the translation is currently being done. They don't have one yet, but it's currently being done in their dialect and in their language. And then there's another color where it says, and we're waiting that this, these are languages where people are waiting for a translation of the Bible in their language or in their dialect. And so it actually blew my mind because, um, obviously if you look at, at Wikipedia, uh, depending on the numbers that you'll, you'll see based on certain things, we have like anywhere between 195 and 205 nations in the world. I think there's like between 195 and 205. The reason I say that gap 
is because there are certain nations that don't recognize other nations as nations. They, they won't recognize their sovereignty. And so they deny that that's a nation. Uh, but right around, let's say 205, 200. But think about that. Within a nation, you have all these different dialects or regional languages. There's, it's not like uh, the United States where wherever you go in the United States, people speak English. I mean, you could think of it one way, like that there's different slang, there's different accents. That's about the majority of what we get. You might go to one place in our country and people are, are using phrases that we don't use in other parts of the nation. But in, in other nations, you've got full dialects that are different. You know, it's like the difference between going to China and speaking uh, Cantonese versus Mandarin. You know, they're two different, completely different languages. They're not the same language. So think about these nations that have all these different dialects in one nation. And I looked in that room and it blew my mind because in in all honesty, before I went in that room, I kind of thought like, okay, it's 2020 because I was there last year. It's 2020. Um, I obviously uh, pretty much the Bible's been translated into every language for a while now. You know, that, that was my thought. I was like, you know, I'm sure the Bible's been pretty much translated into every language. And I was blown away that it's not, it's not translated into every language and dialect. There's a bunch of groups of people that are still waiting for a Bible in their own language or dialect. And so that blew my mind. But I, it, when I went in that room, it, it made me have a huge gratitude for the fact that in, in the United States of America, in our English speaking nation, we don't just have the Bible. We have amazing translations of the Bible. I mean, can you imagine that in America, we have the King James version, the new King James version, the new American standard, the English standard, the new living translation, uh, the, 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 uh, Christian standard Bible, the new English translation. We have uh, literally a glut of translations. If I can use that word, we have more than enough amplified Bible. I mean, you can go through it. We have so much. And, um, not only do we have those translations, we have so much, um, so many tools on the internet that are totally free to us to, to study the Bible as Americans, even Canadians, whatever, we have no excuse, uh, not to study the Bible and to go deep in our Bible study as Christians. We have everything in our hands. Do you know how long it took for the Bible to be translated to go around the world in English, like King James. And now we have the version Bible app that you guys should look this up. I, I, um, I can't remember the number now, but it's billions, I believe, of downloads around the world of that one app, of the version app. You think that in just a short period of time, you know, since like what, 2009, 2010, that Bible or that app that gives us all these translations and languages has gone around the world. It's gone around the world. It's put Bibles into people's phones and tablets and computers that never had it. And it's really amazing. I mean, what, what, a, what a gift to have the Bible uh, in our language and to have all of the translations and tools that we have. So um, I was just start by thanking God because it, it's mind blowing how much we have in 2021 to study the Bible. And so we should. That's what I'm teaching to start is God approves of diligent Bible study. And that's why we, we have to give ourselves to it. There's as a Christian, there's no excuse. We should every day be going in to study the scripture. And these five ways will definitely help you 
and show you maybe things you've never seen before. So let's jump in and I'll do my best to just kind of show you some tools that you can use to do these different things. So put them in the comments as we study. But number one, the first way to study the Bible, and these, by the way, are are in no particular order and definitely no order of importance, um, because the first one that I'm going to give you is number one, topical study, topical study of the Bible. And um, I want you to put that in. Number one, topical study. Sean says, I use Blue Letter Bible or eSword when I study the Bible. Both excellent apps and websites. I have the eSword app on, on both tablet and phone, and I'll go to Blue Letter Bible as well. I used to do that a lot more. I got some new things that I'll talk about. Um, but number one, topical study. And this is a great kind of an overview study that's really, really great to do. Uh, from scripture, it's not, it's one of the easier methods uh, of Bible study that you can do. Um, So think, for example, um, think, for example, if you just picked any topic out of scripture and wanted to just go at it and say, what does the Bible say about, and then let's just pick one, love. What does the Bible say about love? You know, that's a topical study. Hey, Joe, love you, man. And so, you know, you pick a topic ahead of time and then you say, I'm going to just go through the Bible, through the New Testament, whatever it might be, and study only this topic and and write and take notes, make notes, take a notebook and fill it with study on just one topic in scripture. And so, and by the way, hey, Ted, as I give you these, what you'll notice is some of these uh, methods overlap each other, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but some of these methods overlap each other. And, uh, that obviously should happen if you're doing proper Bible study. So number one, topical study, if you've never done a topical study, it's not hard to do. It's actually relatively easy to do, especially with the tools that we have now. So let's say, for example, I was going to do, um, let's say, for example, I was going to do a topical study on love. Of course, it's going to be a big study because love is throughout the entire Bible. Um, depending on your topic, uh, what topic you choose is going to determine like how big the study is, right? Um, so if you did something like tithing, it's going to be a much smaller study because there's far less in the Bible, uh, mentioned about tithing than love. So depending on what topic you choose, that's going to determine how big of a study your topical study is. But let's say, for example, that I was going to do a topical study on the subject of love. Well, one of the things I can do if I just open up, like I have the Olive Tree uh, Bible app, which is what I use. I have a lot of books purchased in there, Bibles purchased. So let's say I, I open Olive Tree and if I just type love and it's a whole Bible search and I hit enter, I get 534 results in the English standard version. I get 534 results for the word love. And then you can, um, you can obviously do variations of the word loved, loves, loving, you know, and you can just continue to mark those down. If you wanted to, you could print them off, whatever you want to do, and then just go through each verse and through each context, which is another very important thing that we'll talk about. But you'd start by saying, okay, here's my topic. I'm going to do love. I'm going to do tithing. I'm going to do, you know, whatever. And you're going to find 
Here's every place in the Bible that that word is used. And then I'm going to go into those passages, verses, read the context because it is important. Thank you, Ben. It is important to look at the proper context uh, of the word so that you're not like studying it outside of its context and then getting a wrong uh, interpretation or idea of what that word means in that place or what the Bible's saying in that place. And we'll, we'll do that in a moment, but you would, you would start by, and I think this is because you could take a lot of time on this. Yeah. Love, love would take weeks, but let's say you wanted to do, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I heard Dr. Mike Murdoch say one time that he uh, did this on purpose. He would buy a new Bible every single year, a new like paper Bible. He would buy a new Bible every single, single year and then decide, I'm going to take this whole year to do a topical study on this subject, right? So uh, he said, like, for example, I have one Bible that's a Bible on uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've got another Bible that's a Bible on prosperity. I've got another Bible that's a Bible on, um, you know, faith. And then so what he would do is that throughout that year, he would do a topical study on prosperity or faith or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or salvation or whatever. And all of his highlights, all of his notes in that one Bible are notes from that subject alone. You could do that with a notebook. Let's say if you went or opened up a document, if you're using your iPad, you use pages or you use, uh, you know, Microsoft OneNote or Evernote or whatever you might use. You could open up whole folders or sections where all of your notes are just on that topic. Now, if it were me, I would definitely use some sort of a digital note taking um, app or program because when you're going to recall all of your Bible study. It's nice to be able to just type in a keyword into Microsoft OneNote or, or something like that and have all of your notes uh, come back with what you did on that keyword. So you can, you're not having to like search through mounds and mounds of notes you've taken to find what you did. Um, but um, you take these topical studies and you're gonna first determine where, where they are in the Bible, everywhere they are in the Bible, and you're gonna determine uh, once you get those, you're going to study, whether you print them off or copy paste, whatever, and you're going to go into each one and you're going to look at it in the context. So, uh, for example, let's say for the, for the, uh, subject of love, you say to yourself, well, first of all, what does the Bible say about God's love? See that now you're going down and breaking the topic down into smaller subtopics, right? You could do, you could do headers. What does the Bible say about God's love? God's love for the earth, God's love for his son, Jesus, God's love for the church, the new Testament church. What does the Bible say about God's love for the world at large? And so you could start with God's love, but then you could go into, uh, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible say we should love? So how should we love? So then here's another subtopic. How should Christians love other Christians? There's a subtopic on the topical study of love. How should Christians love other Christians? Then you do another subtopic. How should Christians love sinners? How should we practically love sinners? What, what should we do? What, what proves our love for sinners? But then let's say we went on even further than that. How should Christians love their enemies? Because not every sinner 
is going to come against you. Not every sinner is going to be your enemy. And so how does a, a Christian love a person that's actively working against them or an enemy, a true enemy? How do you love your enemies? Another subtopic. Um, here's another one. You break it down practically subtopic of love. How should husbands love their wives and how should wives love their husbands? So now, um, you're looking at, uh, different kinds of love, right? So now you're, ju- you're jumping into different kinds of love. How should parents love their children? That's another subtopic within the topical study of love, which, and these, by the way, these are very, very important subtopics. And I'm going to tell you why, because I'm going to bring this in because in this, in this application, you're going to start seeing, um, you're going to start seeing the importance of a di- of the second type of Bible study. So if we're looking at this topic and we say, okay, how does God love the world? How does God love Jesus? How does God love the new Testament church? Because it's different. Um, and then how should the church love the church? How should the church love sinners? How should the church love their enemies? And then how should husbands love wives? How should wives love husbands? How should parents love their children? The reason it's different, uh, how should we love our parents? And then through that, show them honor. You know, all these things are different. The reason, and I want to combine these two together. So if you're taking notes in the, in the comments, pop it in number two, the second type of Bible study is word studies, doing a word study. So if you're taking notes, I want you guys that are writing in the comments, write that number two word studies. And these are very important. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is I'm still teaching on topical study is, as I said a moment ago, these, some of these Bible studies will overlap each other, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There might be, you know, as you're doing a topical study, no question, you're going to also be doing a word study. And I'll explain that in a moment, but as you're doing a a topical study, you're definitely going to be doing a word study. And here's why this, what we're talking about right now is a perfect example of why you need both. Because if you do the Bible study on love, a topical study on love, the first question you're going to ask yourself, as you just saw is what kind of love are we talking about? You know, what kind of love are we talking about? It's interesting to note here. And I made some notes. It's interesting to note, yes, Karen, number one was topical study. Number two is word study. But here's why it's important. If you study the Greek language and you're reading through the New Testament, there are seven different Greek words for love. And in the English Bible, they're all just translated love. But let me just say something. God doesn't love the world in the same way that a husband loves a wife. God doesn't love New Testament Christians the same way. See, and and let me break it down. So it's like one of the Greek words for love is eros, which is like romantic, passionate love. It's where we get like erotic, the word erotic. Eros, it's the Greek word for that type of love, romantic, passionate love. So is that when the Bible says love, when you just did your search and pulled up all your verses on word study, or on topical study. Is the Bible in that passage talking about eros, like passionate love, uh, romantic love, or is it talking about another Greek word, agape, which is a word you've heard, which means godly love or the God kind of love, selfless love, agape. 
Um, or philia, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, which is the, the city of what? Brotherly love. So philia is uh, authentic friendship, brotherly love. So that's, that's different, isn't it? A brotherly love is different than a romantic love. And a romantic love is different than a godly love. So, so let, me, let me show you how this works in practicality and in context. When, when the Bible tells us to love your enemies and pray for those that spitefully use you, do you think the Bible's telling you to fall in love romantically with your enemies? No, the Bible's not teaching us to fall in love romantically with our enemies. Doesn't mean that. And you would, the only way we could break that down and know it is to know what word is the Bible using for love? What word is the Bible using for love? Does it mean that we should have a ludus, a playful, flirtatious love? Um, storge, an unconditional familial or family love. Is that what the Bible's telling us? Um, or uh, philautia, a self-love. Should we have a self-love for our enemies? No, it's important to know what type of love the Bible's talking about, obviously. And so when you're doing this, word study is going to overlap topical study in many cases because you're, you're gonna need to know the context of, well, what does that word mean in this context? Because I can't study the topic if I don't understand the word that is defining the topic, right? And love would be a huge one because there are seven different words for love. So when you get into some of these bigger ones, you'll have to combine the two. You'll have to combine the two. Um, I'll tell you an interesting thing is we're, we're kind of studying these two side by side right now. If you're doing number two, a word study, it would be really interesting, for example, if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Luke chapter 10 is a very, very interesting uh, place to go to teach this because it will, it will explain exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. Um, for years, if you grew up in church, we grew up with the King James version of the Bible. Um, and so when you're looking at the King James version of the Bible, and I'll pull that up, uh, for example, in my Bible app here, and turn to King James. There's King James version. And I'm going to go to Luke chapter 10 in the King James version of the Bible. And I'll go to verse 19. So if you're taking notes, it's Luke 10, 19. Here's why it's vitally important to do a word study. Because if I read Luke 10, 19 in the King James, which we grew up with, if you grew up in church, listen to what the Bible says, or listen to how it was translated into English when they did the King James. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now I'm going to open up a parallel here and uh, I'm going to open up the Greek language because it's important for us to see this. I'll open that up to show you, but that's what we had for years in the King James. Behold, I give unto you power over all the power of the enemy. So let's say you were doing a word study on power, right? And you say to yourself, well, I want to see anywhere the Bible says power. Well, here you come to Luke 10, 19 in the King James, power is listed twice. 
But if you have a newer translation of the Bible, in front of me, I have the New Living Translation, but it would be the same in the ESV or the NASB. Uh, listen to how the New Living Translation renders Luke ten nineteen. Jesus says, look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You see that? I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And so the, the, you see it changed. It's different. Well, you say to yourself, why are they changing the Bible? You know, why are they changing the Bible on us? You know, for years we had power over the power and now they're change, They're trying to change it to authority. No, they're not trying to change it. If you look at the original Greek language in Luke 9, 10, 19, it uses two different Greek words. It doesn't use the word power twice in the Greek language. If you look there, he says, I give unto you exousion. And that's only because it's a direct object in this verse, but exousia is the Greek word for authority. Exousia. But then he says, over what? I give it uh, oh, to you over all of the power. And I think that this is important because it's it, using the word dunamin or dunamis is the uh, uh, lexical version of the, of the word dunamis. That means power. Dunamis. It's where we get like dynamite, dynamite power, dunamis. But he says, I give you exousia over all of the dunamis of the enemy. And, and I love how Kenneth Hagin explained this in his book, The Believer's Authority, because he said, if you were to look at a police officer who was directing traffic when a traffic light went out, you understand in your mind that that officer is standing there telling cars to stop with his hand or a flashlight stop while he's letting other cars go. Now, every one of us watching this broadcast or listening on the podcast understands that that police officer doesn't have the power to put his hands on the hood of a F-150 and say, I told you not to go. And if that driver's stomping the gas pedal, that police officer's with his power, just stopping that truck from going forward. No, we all know that the officer doesn't have the power to stop a vehicle. But what does he have? Authority. He's been delegated authority. He's a deputized officer who has the power to just hold his hand out and tell you to stop. And when he tells you to stop, why do you stop? The reason you stop is because you understand his authority. That if you don't obey him and stop, there will be consequences. And so it's very important that we understand this because if you were doing a a topical study on power or a word study on power, you might come there in the King James version of the Bible and say, yeah, that's power twice. It's not go into the Greek language and know like what I'm telling you here, because in a word study, you would not just look at the English word because the Bible's not written in English. The old Testament was written in Hebrew with portions of Aramaic and the Chalde and the new Testament is written in the Greek language, Koine Greek. So you would go back and look, well, what did they understand back then? Because when Jesus spoke to his disciples and then when this was written in the early church was reading this in the Greek manuscripts as they were going from church to church to church, you know, the, if you've never heard that term before, Koine Greek, 
Koine Greek, it's, it's the word for more common, common Greek, or some people call it marketplace Greek, marketplace Greek. The reason it's called that is because it was the commonly spoken language at that time. It wasn't just something scholars like today, you know, only, only like Bible scholars go through the Greek and the Hebrew. But back then it was the common marketplace Greek that everybody spoke. And that's why they copied the Bible in the, in that language. So when it was going from church to church, to church, to church around the world, guess what? They could take those letters from Paul or from Peter or the gospels or the book of Acts, and they could easily read them and they'd read them publicly in church services. So when they read this passage in Luke, you know what they would have read and immediately understood? Oh, God has given us authority over all the power of the devil. See, they would have known it, but because one language comes into our language, you can see the translation was a little bit vague back when the King James Bible was done in 1611, but now because we have much better scholarship on the Bible, our newer versions of the Bible are going to render that accurately. This is, I give unto you authority over all the power of the devil. And it's important, you know, if you're going to do those word studies to know what it's really saying to you. So I would say this, and I say, Sean saw this earlier or said this earlier that a lot of times he'll use the blue letter Bible, which is an app that I had as well. Um, the, uh, E sword. And so let me give you an example. And I've done this on, if you want to go and see videos where I taught exclusively on Bible study, you can go to miracleword.com forward slash study. And we have a bunch of, um, videos that I did there. We did deep touch teaching on study. And I was even showing you inside my computer, uh, the apps and how I use the apps to do Bible study. But as Teresa says, um, she uses Strong's concordance. And so Dr. Strong made a concordance of every Greek and then later Hebrew word where you have a number. It's like a coding system. If anybody watching me is old enough uh, to remember back when you used to go to the library and have to use the Dewey Decimal System uh, to find books in the library. You remember looking up where a book was in the library. Um, and I can remember the tape on the bottom when I have the Dewey Decimal Code for that book. Um, that's what Dr. Strong did for Greek and Hebrew, is that he gave a code to every word in the New Testament and every word in the Old Testament. So if I were to open up on my, on my, uh, iPad right now, I have the, uh, E sword that he's talking about. And if I look, for example, let's say that I go back to Luke 10, 19, I'll show you the difference. Like if, if I'm in Luke 10, 19, I'm going to see two different codes for those two different words. So here I am behold, I give unto you power. Cause it's under the King James here, but it, here's the code. Listen to this G which means Greek, G1849. So Dr. Strong gave the code G1849 to this word power. Um, But then he says, and overall the power of the enemy, that's a different code. That's G1411. So the nice thing about the app is that you can just click the code with your finger and it pops up a window to tell you what that Greek or Hebrew word is. And so if I go to that first one, behold, I give unto you 
power G1849, if I click it, you know what it's going to say? Exousia. It's going to show me the word in Greek. Then it's going to show the translation or the transliteration in English. Then it's going to show how to pronounce it in English or pronounce the Greek word. And then it's going to show you the, the definition. Exousia. It means privilege or capacity or um, authority, jurisdiction, or liberty. So that's different. But then if I go down and click the other one, over all the power of the enemy, and when I get to that one, that word is, again, G1411. That one's going to say dunamis, as I told you a moment ago, dunamis. And it literally means force, literally or figuratively force or power. And so uh, you can understand why these newer ver versions of the Bible more accurately translated exousia authority because it doesn't mean power. And so that's why I was saying if you wanted to do more of a, um, a word study, it is nice to use something like the Strong's Concordance. And although it's a little bit outdated in a sense because it was made so long ago, we've had lots of discoveries of Greek manuscripts and we've had lots of uh, progression in um, you know scholarship on the Greek the ancient Greek language and stuff but it's an excellent for the for the everyday Christian it's an excellent addition and you get these apps like for example uh, this one is eSword HD I guess because it's for the iPad but eSword you can have those right in there in line and click them with your finger um, the blue letter Bible, I have that app right next to it here. Same type of thing where you can have the, uh, King James with the Strong's concordance. Someone asked a minute ago, what about the Logos Bible software? Um, and that, that's great too. If you go to logos.com, L O G O S logos.com. Um, there's tons of stuff you can purchase in, in the Logos Bible software. I also use olive tree. Uh, Bible study because it's got a bookstore. It's got a bunch of stuff you can buy. If I'm, I mean, I use a, a, a paper Bible, but if I pull out my iPad or iPhone to teach somebody something, I always go out of the olive tree. I have all my translations in there. Uh, it keeps all of your notes on verses, all of that. Um, I have a, a Greek version of the of the New Testament in Logos that I can that I can look at. I can parallel it with whatever translation I want and the Greek. But if I was going to use that um, e-sword and I went to the Old Testament, for example, let's say we went back to like Psalm 23, it's going to be a different kind of code, right? So where the G means Greek in the new one, you can imagine in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's going to be H for Hebrew, right? So if I go and say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, that word shepherd is H7462. And it really means uh, someone who tends to a flock or pastures a flock or allows it to graze, who rules a flock generally. So you can see why that was translated shepherd because that's what it means in the Hebrew. So um, these tools will really, really help you when you're doing topical studies and word studies, both of those. Um, number three, the third type of Bible study that, that is really great to do is biogra like biographical studies or biographies. You might find a person in the scripture that you just really want to do uh, a biographical study of their life um, throughout whenever they lived. And of course, one of the reasons that we send you this right here, 
which is those that partner with us. This is the Life Application Study Bible. You can see all the different notes it's got inside. It's got maps. It's got uh, all kinds of different, um, uh, what, what they're calling uh, character studies. We're, we're calling them biographical studies. They have character studies. I actually, the, on this page that I'm on, it's doing Lazarus' sister, Martha. And then it gives all kinds of notes on her, her strengths and her accomplishments, her weaknesses and mistakes, her notable facts, lessons from her life, the statistics, her key verses in scripture. Uh, but you can go even deeper than that. So let's say you wanted to do a study on King David. There's a bunch of stuff you can read on King David in the Bible. And again, just like with topics and words, some people are going to have much more written about them than others, right? It's like when you, my daughter just got finished going through the book of judges with her school. And it's amazing because some of the judges in the book of judges, there's tons of stuff written about them. You've got a lot written about like Samson. There's a lot written about Samson. Then there's other judges in that, in that book that there's only like two verses about that one judge. That's it. That's all we know about what they did uh, for God. So obviously, depending on uh, what it is that you're looking at, you're going to have much more or more, much less content. King David would have more. Jesus is going to have more. Paul's going to have more. You know, you look at some of these main characters of the Bible and you want to do a biographical study. It might be interesting to trace the apostle Paul's life. Maybe you wanted to trace Paul's life and say, okay, I want to look at him before he was saved as he's studying as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. I want to see his conversion, Acts chapter nine. I, I then want to study what he did with the churches. I want to study his uh, three missionary journeys, you know. And what's nice about Bibles, a lot of these Bibles, uh, in the back, they have different maps. And, and here's where something gets really useful to you. Um, there's Palestine, the world of the patriarchs, uh, 12 tribes of Israel where they were located. Um, and then you have um, in the New Testament maps, you, a lot of these Bibles will give you a map with different colored lines where they're showing you, like here it is right here, Paul's journey to Rome, but you can see Paul's three missionary journeys. And each one of his missionary journeys has a different color to all the lines going from point to point on the map. So you could literally trace Paul's life. You could trace Paul's missionary journeys and to see where he was going throughout his life. And then if you're read, reading about Paul, one of the cool and interesting things you can do is like, okay, where did he write his letters? From where did he write them? You know, and you can see another nice thing that this Bible does is it tells you uh, in, in times where we have some scholarship that gives us the availability to know where he wrote the letters uh, from. So when you start like in a, in a book like 1 Corinthians, um, it'll talk to you in the vital statistics. Like I go through 1 Corinthians and on the side here it says, um, Paul wrote this approximately AD 55, near the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. So that's a cool thing. If you were, if you were looking at Paul's life as a biography, you could see things like that about the letters he wrote. And this is telling us he wrote 1 Corinthians in AD 55. Where was he when he wrote it? He was in Ephesus. When was it? It was, uh, and he had a three-year ministry in Ephesus, and this was at the end, and, uh, and that was on his third missionary journey. So that gives you context as well. You know, where was he when he wrote his letters? 
What was he doing when he wrote his letters? All important questions when you're studying the letter itself, which we'll get to in a moment, but when you're doing biography or biographical studies, very important to look at that and say, man, that gives me a lot of context about this letter. You know, it gives me, it helps me to understand, you know, what, why he was writing what he was writing, what was going on at the time in that church, why he wrote the letter, all that stuff. And someone asked a minute ago, what do you consider like a great study Bible uh, to use? And um, there's a lot you could, you could choose. We've really enjoyed the life application study Bible, which is why we send it to our partners. But as you guys have heard me say, what we're doing right now is we're putting something together called the Elite Study Pack, which is three of what I think are the best resources in Bibles. One of them is this, the Life Application Study Bible. Another is the Dakes Annotated Reference Bible. And another one is the New English Translation with Translator's Notes. They call it the Full Notes Edition. 60,000 translator's notes on one Bible of why they made the decisions they made gives you textual notes, it gives you uh, scriptural notes, and then also textual criticism. And then we, we're gonna include two books on how to study scripture in that pack. And so Bible, store, uh, book, Bible bookstores, Christian bookstores, Juliana have these. Uh, some of them are harder to find than others. But I guess right now, the Life Application Study Bible uh, is the best-selling study Bible in the United States, as far as, far as I know. It's what they're saying. Um, Grace said, is the King James version good? Is it okay? Yeah, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. In my personal opinion, we have better translations now than the King James. And somebody would ask me, well, why do you say that? Why do you say we have better translations now than the King James? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, when the King James Bible was translated, they only had like seven Greek manuscripts, um, at the time that they translated the Bible into, into the King James English. Now we have over 6,000 New Testament manuscripts and fragments that have been discovered, uh, much older and better manuscripts than they did back then. You know, there's things people don't even know about the King James Bible. Like for example, when uh, Erasmus was doing his Greek New Testament, which is what the King James was based off of, was because it's what the Latin Vulgate was based off of, um, he didn't even have a copy of the book of Revelation. Like literally Erasmus, who did the first printed Greek New Testament that was published, had no copy of the a book of Revelation. And so he had to write to his friend in the Vatican, whose name was Bombasius. He had to write to him and say, uh, can I get a copy? Well, you can't have a copy, but we'll send you some commentaries. So now Erasmus is doing a copy of the book of Revelation from commentaries that are citing the book of Revelation. And so um, when the King James version of the Bible was written, Erasmus did his Greek version with no copy of Revelation. So the Latin Vulgate was made, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, with no, from no copy of, of the book of Revelation. And then the, the King James version was copied from uh, six or seven Greek manuscripts plus the Latin Vulgate and others. With no, Really, it came out of no copy of the book of Revelation. Now we have uh, so many, so many manuscripts to study and to look at. And we have much, in my opinion, as I just pointed out, like from Luke 10, 19, we have much better 
and more accurate, I think, more accurate translations of what the scripture says uh, than we did back then. So if it were me, I don't suggest the King James Bible to Christians in 2021. I'm thankful for all of the, all that it did, all that God used it to do. But I suggest, you know, the, the NASB or the ESV or even the NLT, you know, which are fine translations. They're, they're different on what they do. You know, Karen's asking, do you have an explanation of Bibles like word for word or thought for thought? The New Living Translation is more thought for thought. It's what you would call dynamic equivalence. The ESV and the NASB try to be more on the formal equivalent side. That's word for word. But every translation of the Bible in the English has to be at some point thought for thought because you can't exactly take words from the Greek and put them into uh, the English language, nor can you do that with Hebrew or Chaldee, Aramaic. If you think it's going to read well, go pull up biblehub.com and click on the interlinear version of the Bible and see how fluidly that reads. <laughs> you'll, you'll find out real quick that if you wanted to do a straight word for word translation, it wouldn't even be readable. It wouldn't even be readable in the English language. And so, uh, yeah, Juliana, I said the three Bibles are the life application study, Dakes, D-A-K-E-S. His name was Finus Dake. And then the third was the NET, the New English Translation, Full Notes Edition. Full, new, full Notes Edition. Um, and so you can just see that if you did an interlinear reading, it's like you couldn't read it. You wouldn't be able to stand up in church and read that. It doesn't even make sense because uh, many of you may not know this, but in the Greek language, word order means nothing. Like literally, you don't have to put the words in any order for them to mean what we have in English. For us, word order is important. In Greek, it's not. So when you read it and, and exactly translate it, it's not even readable. So I encourage people to get something like the NASB, the ESV, even the NLT for new believers or kids or teenagers. It's great. They're great translations of the Bible. And uh, I really, I really am thankful for what we have. Any online bookstore, Bonnie, um, any Christian bookstore, any of these programs like the Olive Tree Bible app, Logos uh, online, any of these, they'll have them to purchase digitally. So that's number three, biography. You can do a biographical study of a character in the Bible. Number four, uh, which is what we, I, I really wanted to focus on for a moment because it, it, takes, it takes some understanding, is studying the Bible book by book. That's number four. A book study. A book study of the Bible. I'll give you these last two before we pray. A book study. Well, why would someone want to do a book study? Well, that's very important. So let's, let's say, for example, we pulled up 1 Corinthians, like I've got open in front of me. You know, that was a letter. It's a book of our Bible, but it was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And so you say, well, why would we want to do a book study on the Bible? It's very important. You, you know, you're going to ask yourself a question. The Holy Spirit thought that it was important enough that, that the Corinthian church get a letter from Paul that he inspired a letter to sense inspired two letters first and second Corinthians. And so the Holy spirit thought it was so important that this church in Greece heard from the apostle that he inspired a letter. And so 
when you do a book study, it's going to be a lot different than doing a topical study. It's going to be different than doing a word study. Although once again, word study is probably going to overlap in book study because as you're studying through like one of Paul's letters or one of the gospels or something, you're going to want to know what he was saying to those people in Greece. And it will, it will help you as you're doing through the book study. But that's why study Bibles sometimes can help you as you're doing a book study. <laughs> Someone said, isn't the message in Passion Translation your favorites? Asking for a friend. Everyone knows how I feel about the message in the Passion. And the reason I feel that way is because number one, they're not translations, they're paraphrases. They're someone's idea of what the Bible is saying. But other, the other reason is we don't need any more translations in English. They're money makers is all they are. They're money makers. Why do you think they, that, that publishing companies hold copyrights uh, to Bibles? It's because it makes them tons of money. The Bible's the best selling book in history and remains that way. And so we don't need the passion. We don't need the message. We've got fine Bible translations that have done by, been done by scholars that are phenomenal. But like, let's say we looked at the vital statistics of 1 Corinthians. This will help you when you're doing a study on a book or a letter. For example, uh, it starts right off in this Life Application Study Bible with what it calls the vital statistics of the book. And it starts with this. What's the purpose of 1 Corinthians? Well, it listed here to identify problems in the Corinthian church, to offer solutions, and to teach the believers how to live for Christ in a corrupt society. And so that's a nutshell what uh, this letter is teaching the Corinthians. Then it tells you who the author is, Paul. Then who the original audience was, which is also important, the Corinthian church. Then of course, as I read you earlier, the date written and where he wrote it. Then it gives you the setting. Listen to this. Corinth was a major cosmopolitan city, a seaport, and major trade center, the most important city in Achaia or Achaia. It was also filled with idolatry and immorality. The church was largely made up of Gentiles, which is also important when you're studying the book. Paul had established this church on his second missionary journey. So he was in his second missionary journey. He started the church. Now in his third missionary journey, he's writing a letter back to the church. He started important to know that. Then it gives you a key verse, key people, key place, and then special features. First Corinthians is a strong, straightforward letter. There's ton, there's rebukes. He's rebuking them throughout first Corinthians for things that they're doing. They got a guy in the church sleeping with his stepmother and bragging about it, you know, and he rebukes them and tells them, cast him out of the church and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his soul. And then you get, get through, you can read a big introduction they do to first Corinthians. And then I love this, uh, the blueprint, they give you something called the blueprint of the book. And a, it says Paul addresses church problems and it shows you where he does that from chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter six, verse 20. He, he, and then the two problems, divisions in the church and disorder in the church. Then in the second part of the blueprint, Paul answers church questions. So here's something that may, people not, may not understand about 1 Corinthians if they've never done a book study. 1 Corinthians is actually a reply 
letter. It's not the origin letter. It's a reply. They had written Paul and asked him questions. So he's writing this letter in response to what they wrote to him. So in the second half, he's answering the church's questions that they wrote about. And that lasts from chapter seven, verse one, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 16, verse 24. And what are the questions he's answering? Instructions on Christian marriage, instructions on Christian freedoms, instructions on public worship, and instructions on the resurrection. And that's 15 and 16. So he talks about that. Then it goes down to the explanation of the mega themes throughout this book, loyalties, immorality, freedom, worship, and the resurrection. That gives you an explanation of those mega themes. So you're, you're starting to look at this letter and break it down. What was Paul talking about? Why did he even write back to them? What was the purpose of his letter? See, you're, now you're getting a full understanding. It's like throw a hand in the comments. If you remember back when you were in high school or, or middle school and had to do book reports, <laughs> you remember that? How many of you having to do book reports and then they'd assign you a book. Then you had to do all these things. You, know, you had to do all, answer all of these questions um, while you did the book report and figure out what's the book about. You know, you know, what does it deal with? What themes does it deal with? All those different things. And uh, it, is, it is important because one of the problems is if you, read, if you read through the Bible and you don't understand who it was written to originally, what the purpose of the letter was originally, you can truly screw up some Bible interpretation if you don't understand these basic things. That's why when you're starting to do these types of studies, it's extremely important to remember who wrote this and who was it written to and why was it written? So, so let me, let me say this now. I agree with him. He said, the message is like graffiti. Once in a while, there might be something good. My, my uncle, Pastor Terry Shuttlesworth. So I want you to write these three questions down quickly. Who wrote this? To whom did he write it? And why was it written? Three questions. Three questions I want you to write in the comments. Who wrote it? To whom did they write it? Why was it written? Write those three questions down. This is extremely helpful. I know that this, this may not be a broadcast that everybody feels like they need, but this is a massively important broadcast. So I'm glad you're here. Who wrote it? To whom did they write it? And why did they write it? Those three things are vital, vital when you're studying the Bible. And almost nobody, almost nobody asked those questions. And it's so important. Who wrote it? To whom did they write it? Why did they write it? Because one of the dangers, right? Let me, let me show you something. One of the dangers that preachers get into and Christians get into with the Bible is that they'll just like open up the Bible and they'll say, like, I'll give you an example. Go, we'll go over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. Everybody loves to turn here. Let me go to Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 29, 11, get ready to shout for, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Okay. Yes. The Bible does say that. And Christians pluck that verse out with no context whatsoever. 
and they'll just start quoting it over their life, quoting it over their life. I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans, you know, they're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And, and literally, they'll just quote that. So one of the dangerous things to do is to drop the Bible open and then read a verse and say, what does it mean to me? Dangerous. First of all, it wasn't written to you. <laughs> I know that that, I know that freaks people out because there's already people shouting in the comments and I don't say that to, I'm not saying that to, to joke you. I'm saying, think about it. First of all, Jeremiah 29, 11 wasn't written to you. <laughs> That's important to know. It's not to the New Testament church. It wasn't written to the believer. There were no believers. There was no church. There was nothing. Don't, no, don't get too discouraged, Leslie, because I'm going to help you out in a minute. But listen to me. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not written to the church. It's not written to Christians. It has nothing to do with Christians. It's a letter written to the exiles, Jewish exiles that are, you know, so uh, it's important to know that. Like if we start, start off verse, start off chapter 29, verse one, Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiakim, the, uh, the queen mother, the court officials, court officials of Judah, all the craftsmen, artisans have been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, the son of Shaphan and uh, Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what the letter said. So now right there, we just figured something out, didn't we? Who wrote it? Well, Jeremiah wrote it. But to whom did he write it? Not to the New Testament church. There was no New Testament church. Not to Christians. There were no Christians. Who did he write it to? He wrote it according to the, to the chapter. He wrote it to those that had been exiled and gone into Babylonian captivity. Right? And then, and then you go on. This is what the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies, God of Israel, says to the captives. That he's exiled to, Babylonian, to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant the gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then found, find spice, spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. Work in peace and prosperity to the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare, and it'll determine your welfare. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Don't listen to their dreams because they're, willing, they're telling you lies in my name. I've not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I'll come and do for you all the things I've promised and I'll bring you home again for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now see, when you read it in context, doesn't it make better sense? The Jews are in captivity. They're in Babylonian captivity. They're in exile. They're under judgment. And they're, they're hearing false prophets that are doom and gloom prophesying to them. And so... What's Jeremiah telling them from the Lord? He's telling them, don't listen to these doom and gloom prophets. Don't listen to the false teachers. I didn't send them. I didn't send them to you. I'm telling you, be encouraged. You'll be there for 70 years, but then I'll come to you and I'll do the good things I've promised and I'll bring you home again. Who's that written to? Jews that left Jerusalem in their exile to Babylon. And now they're in captivity and God's encouraging them through Jeremiah saying, don't, don't be discouraged. I'm going to bring you back again to to Jerusalem, back to Israel. And I know the plans I have for you. They're not plans to destroy you. They're plans for your good, for your hope, for, their, for your future. 
So you, you can understand how ridiculous it seems to, to just drop your Bible open to Jeremiah 29, 11 and start declaring over your life. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. That's not written to you. So number one, Jeremiah wrote it. He wrote it to the exiled Jews in Babylon for the purpose of encouraging them while they're in exile. And then why was it written? That's why it was written to encourage them about its prophecy, but it's also telling them what God's going to do for them after they're, they're in exile 70 years. And so you can see why it's dangerous. Uh, you can see why it's dangerous. Just plop the Bible open, read a passage and say, what does it mean to me? You don't start studying the Bible that way. You don't plop the Bible open to any passage. And say, what does that mean to me? You say, who wrote this? Who did they write it to? And why was it written? You don't get to what does it mean to me until at the end of your Bible study. So one of the things you could say is in a general sense, okay, so somebody says, well, why, why are we declaring it over our lives? I don't know. It's not a verse to declare over your life. It's not for that. In, in a general sense, no, let, let me get this now. Here's how you should responsibly study the Bible. In a general sense, this passage shows us the nature and the character of God is that even though the Jews were being punished, even though they were in exile, even though they were in captivity, God's encouraging them and saying, I'm not planning to destroy you. I'm planning to give you a future and a hope to help you. And so we know that God has a plan to help his children. He loves his children. Um, and then you take this over and understand in the new Testament, Hebrews tells us, we are living under a better covenant that's established upon better promises. So whatever good things God may have promised his children in the old Testament, we've got even better promises in the new. We've got even better promises, a better scripture. In my opinion, if you were going to go to it, you could read what God, what Jesus teaches about God in Matthew chapter seven, where he teaches the, uh, the Jews there, Hey, you're, you're earthly fathers and you still love your children and do good things for them. You know, to which of you, if your child asks you for a loaf of bread, do you give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, do you give him a serpent? And then, God, and then Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those that ask him? So he's teaching about the nature and character of God. He loves you. He wants to give you good gifts. As I read at the beginning, Hebrews tells us that God's a rewarder of those that seek him. And so better, it's better to just, instead of plopping your Bible open to some Old Testament passage and saying, what does this mean to me that was written sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before there was a Christian church, it's better to go into the New Testament and see what was written directly to me. Because in, in one sense, the, the epistles, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, those things in a sense were written to the church even though they weren't written directly to you, like for example, first Corinthians was written to the Corinthians, not you, but they were in the Christian church. And so the things that apply to them in principle are going to apply to you in principle. So when he says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, that's not just self-contained to the Corinthians that, well, you know, the rest of the church at large can be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That was just for the Corinthians. No, that's a principle that we take on to ourselves as New Testament Christians. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Come out from among them. Be separated. You know, uh, it's like when he, when he taught them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that your bodies 
are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're not going to isolate that and say, well, you know, Paul was just writing to the Corinthians. And so that's self-contained to just, just the Corinthians bodies were filled with the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. The Corinthian church, right? The Corinthian church is the, uh, receiving the letter, but the church at large has the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. So that's why it's even better for us to read what was written to us. You know, in the Old Testament, it's the things that of God that are concealed, but in the New Testament, they're the things of God revealed. I'll say that again so that you understand it. The things in the Old Testament, it's the word of God concealed. In the New Testament, it's the word of God revealed. And so some things they were looking through through a glass darkly. They were, they were trying to interpret what was being meant by the coming Messiah and the promise to come and all those things. We now know it was Jesus Christ and all those prophecies were fulfilled about him, all that. See what I mean? So it's better to look at what was really written to us and establish our lives based on that. Andrew said, I love that the NLT life application study Bible you sent me before each book gives a breakdown of what the book's about, who it's geared towards, the period and time it was written. Yeah, and that's what I'm dealing with now, Andrew, is that it's so helpful, so helpful to us. And, that, and this is where I'm talking about doing a book study. You want to go deep. Uh, Leslie said, question, should I not have that in my son's confession then? Trying to understand because it wasn't promised to us, we shouldn't confess that. Um, as I just read to you in that passage, in context, it has nothing to do with Christians, has nothing to do with new believers. Now, does that, does that mean that God doesn't have a plan to bless his New Testament children? No, of course not. He absolutely has a plan. Like if I read this again, um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster. Um, to give you a future and a hope. Well, ask yourself the question. Uh, does God have plans for our good, not disaster? Absolutely he does. To give us a future and a hope? Absolutely he does. It's just that this verse of scripture is not the one I would stand on to confess those things. Because it's not, this scripture has nothing to do in context with Christians or New, the New Testament church. As I said, I would go into the new, t- I, w- I wouldn't say you stop confessing that God has plans for our blessing, plans for our future, plans for our hope. I would just base that prayer point or that scripture on a New Testament verse that backs that thought. See what I mean? Because we know it's true about God's nature because the scripture tells us it is. As I said, Matthew 7, I would use Matthew 7 and say, thank you, Lord, that, that you're a loving heavenly father, that you have plans to bless us. And that when we ask you, you give good gifts to those that ask you. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Gospel of John. You see what I mean? Now the promises of Deuteronomy are a little bit different because they are promises to God's people if they will obey his instructions, right? So he says, if you'll obey what I command you to do, these are the things that I will do to bless you. And then in Galatians chapter three, it ties it in that the blessing of Abraham may come upon the Gentiles. So Old Testament, even under the law of Moses, we understand that God, if God was willing to bless his people for their obedience back then, how much more is he willing to bless his people for their obedience now? It's a better covenant. We have better promises. You see what I mean? And so it's different to apply a prophecy of the Old Testament to yourself. Let me give you a better example of what I mean. Jeremiah is a prophet and Jeremiah is writing a prophecy here. Why? He's predicting what will happen in the future. 
You'll only be in Babylon for 70 years. Then I'll come and take you out and bring you back and I'll deliver you back to your people. I have plans for your future. So he's prophesying to those people. Well, imagine if you wrongly attributed prophecy to yourself, right? The reason it's popular amongst Christians and pastors is because there are so many people that don't understand how to study the Bible. It's a sad thing. Many people, do you know 90 some percent of uh, preachers have never read the Bible through all the way? 90 some percent, percent of some seminary graduates have never read the Bible through all the way. Many don't understand hermeneutics, which is the study of scripture, how to rightly divide scripture. Many don't understand how to rightly divide the, the Bible. And so they do what I told you a moment ago is they just plop it open. Uh, let me tell you what they'll do. Well, let me finish my thought and then I'll tell you. It's wrong to just apply specific prophecies to your life like they're a promise. Just like Jeremiah 29, 11. What if I picked out a messianic prophecy that was really about Jesus and tried to apply it to my life? For example, when the Bible prophesies, not one bone in his body will be broken. Well, Psalm, yeah, I think it's Psalm 22. Is it Psalm 22 that prophesies that? That's about Jesus. It's not about the New Testament church and it's not about you and it's not about me. And by the way, that prophecy already came to pass, right? Um, verse 17 of Psalm 22, I can count all my bones. And there's another portion of scripture um, that's, that's talking about this. Um, and it was fulfilled when they didn't break any of Jesus' bones on the cross. So that's a messianic prophecy. But what if you started taking uh, messianic prophecies and applying to yourself? I thank you, God, that I'll never break a bone because your word says that not one bone in his body will be broken, right? So it's like, uh, I can count all, I, I stand on this Psalm. I can count all my bones. I thank you, Jesus. I can count all my bones. I thank you. Not one bone in my body will be broken. Well, that's not written about you. It's written about Jesus. And it was very specific. It's that when he was on the cross, they wouldn't break his bones. I can count all my bones that not one bone in his body was broken to fulfill prophecy. It's messianic prophecy. So it's important that we understand you don't just randomly take prophecies and apply them to your life. You have to read them in context to know who they're about and what they're about and what, who they were written to. Very important. But then on the other side of that, there's so many Christians that don't understand how to properly uh, interpret scripture. And so it's not wrong to take the principles of something as long as they apply to the New Testament church, but it is important to understand that not every prophecy is written directly to you. Very important to divide the word properly. But you go into scriptures that, you know, guys will get in there and start preaching them. And, and it's not even the context. I've, it would blow your mind if I told you how many times I've sat and listened to people preach and thought to myself, like, that doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> it doesn't mean it at all. And, and it's, it's an improper dividing of scripture. It's an improper interpretation of scripture. We've got to be careful. There's two ways that you look at scripture, exegetically and eisegetically eisegetically is wrong. It's, there's error in that. So let me give you a, a, an example so that you never do this. I know we're going a little bit long today. I'm almost done. Number one, exegetically is when you let the text speak for itself. That's exegesis. But eisegesis is when you speak into the text, right? It's when you speak into the text. So it's when you come up with an idea and then try to find verses to back up your idea. That's a wrong thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Exegesis, 
versus eisegesis. Let the text speak for itself. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's what we should be doing as faithful Bible students. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Don't, don't then try to read into scripture what you want it to say and try to just find proof texts for yourself. That's what a lot of people do. Proof text, meaning I'm going to come up with an idea that I want to preach and then I want to go find scriptures to back up my idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let the scripture interpret the scripture. Let the scripture interpret the scripture. Andrew said a lot of popular mainstream pastors do that, unfortunately, and they add their own ideas to the text and apply it. It's exactly true. You don't, it's like I I heard recently, I heard a very, very famous, very, very famous uh, pastor say that when God showed up to Moses in the burning bush and he said, who am I, who who shall I tell them sent me? And he said, tell them I am that I am has sent you. And, And the pastor said, and when God said to Moses, I am, what he was really trying to get across to, to him was, you are. <laughs> no, that's not what he was saying to him at all. That's an extremely poor interpretation of that scripture. When God was telling Moses to go tell Pharaoh, I am has sent me, he wasn't trying to tell Moses, you are. He was revealing that the most high God, the most high God, is the one giving you this message. It's not I, Moses, giving it to you. It's not Aaron that's giving it to you. You're receiving this message from the I am, the great and mighty God, the creator of heaven and the earth. It has nothing to do with you are. You're reading that into the text. That's eisegesis. It's very, very poor interpretation of scripture. But we see that happen all over the place, all over the place. And we just gotta be very careful. We need to be responsible when we study scripture. The final one I'll give you before we pray The fifth type of Bible study that we need to do is doctrinal study. Doctrinal study. Put that in. Number five, doctrinal study. So we have topical, word studies. We have biographical studies, book studies, and doctrinal studies. Do a doctrinal study. It's very important. You know, it's why we launched Miracle Word University. Because so many people don't understand why they believe what they believe. So Miracle Word U, as you see on the screen, miraclewordu.com, we began to teach the doctrines of the church from the Pentecostal perspective because so many Pentecostals don't even know why they believe what they believe. And so you do doctrinal study. Well, what would be an example of doctrinal study? Well, a doctrinal study is literally going deep, diving deep, thank you, Janine, into the doctrines of scripture. Well, let's list one. What's a doctrine of scripture? The deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. That's a doctrine that we believe that's very important to believe. Very important to believe, the deity of Christ. What's another doctrine? The doctrine of salvation. How does someone get saved? The doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of divine healing. We believe that the New Testament teaches that divine healing is something that has been given to the church via redemption, that we have the ability to stand in faith and receive. It's the doctrine of divine healing, the doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We believe that it's God's will that every believer be baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. We believe that it's a doctrine of the Pentecostal church. Um, 
There are doctrines. We believe that the word of God is inspired and inerrant. We hold that as a doctrine, the doctrine of the word of God. We believe that this Bible is inspired and it's inerrant, no error. And it came out of the mouth of God, breathed out of God's mouth as uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. And so do a doctrinal study. One of the things that may help you to do doctrinal study is to buy a systematic theology textbook. And I can give you uh, a few suggestions if you'd like, but um, I'll give you two that we give in um, Miracle Word University. Um, But a systematic theology textbook is, is a great thing to have. It's a great tool as a Christian because it teaches us why we believe what we believe. Um, The first one that I will give you is one that they gave me in Bible school. It's a good textbook. It's, it's entitled, um, foundations of Pentecostal theology foundations. You can put it in the text. If you will put it in the comments foundations of Pentecostal theology. And it was written by a man. Actually, I think two men, um, Duffield and Van Cleave are the two last names. I think it's Nathaniel Van Cleave and Guy P. Duffield, I think are the two men. Um, So Foundations of Pentecostal Theology by Duffield and Van Cleave. Very, very good book uh, for systematic theology. And it reads more like a textbook uh, by Duffield and Van Cleave. Uh, And so that's one. You can get that, I believe, on, um, there might be a Kindle version. You know what? I bought it through Logos Bible Software. I think that might've been the only place I found the like digital version of it. And so it's good to get, uh, through logos.com, um, foundations of Pentecostal theology. Uh, the second one that I would, um, recommend to you as a systematic theology textbook is a book called renewal theology. It's called renewal theology. Uh, and it's by Dr. J Rodman Williams. Dr. J. Rodman Williams, it's uh, Renewal Theology. And he writes a systematic theology textbook from the charismatic perspective. Uh, Dr. J. Rodman Williams, uh, great book. Both of those will help you immensely as you're doing doctrinal study of the Bible. And I don't think, hear what I'm saying to you. And I, I say this to the Victory Tribe, and I know that we we have people that are truly interested because uh, this is not as... as um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like preaching to you today. I'm teaching you, but understand the people that are on are those that are hungry to go deeper in scripture. I don't think that it should only be like preachers that go through systematic theology textbooks and understand doctrine. I think every Christian who's serious about Christianity obviously should know why they believe what they believe. I think we're in danger. One of the things I was talking to my wife about recently was some of you that are on here are old enough to remember back when churches still did, and I don't mean for kids, back when churches still did Sunday school. Throw a hand up in the comments if you remember back when churches still did Sunday school. They, they, they used to do, and you'd see it on their church sign. It would say Sunday morning worship service, 10 a.m., Sunday morning, by, uh, Sunday, morning um, Sunday school, 9 a.m. And they would do like a 9 a.m. Sunday school and like a 10 a.m. worship service. Well, what does that mean? The, the Sunday school was where the adults went to learn uh, 
or have deeper study about the Bible. It's where you learn doctrine. It's where they taught you about scripture. And then the Sunday morning worship service was praise, worship, and the pastor's message. But understand something, we've lost that because of the seeker-sensitive church movement. Well, that's not cool, that's not edgy, that's not needed. And you know what it produced? A whole generation of Christians that don't know what they believe. They have no idea, no idea. Some of the messages and series taught in our churches are so shallow, so shallow, you wouldn't take any doctrinal thought away from what what, uh, some pastors are teaching, none. And Sunday school built strong Christians. Let me read you 1 Peter 3, 15. The Bible says, um, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's the apologist's verse. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That means that as a Christian, that's written to Christians in Asia Minor. That, that means if someone has a question about why you believe what you believe, you're commanded in scripture to be able to explain it. You're, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, well, why do you guys believe that, that God heals people today? Well, I don't know. I guess that, I mean, that's just what our church believes. That's not an answer. Always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. Why do you guys speak in tongues? What's the, what is that whole thing about getting, catching the Holy Ghost? Always be ready to explain it. It's, it's the, uh, uh, you know, when you people hear the, uh, the term apologist, this is how, this is literally how dumb people in the modern day are. Here's like, well, this, so-and-so he's, he's an apologist. And you know, I've actually heard people that are so dumb, like, well, I'll, I'll never be an apologist. I refuse to apologize for what the word of God says. That's not what an apologist is. You genius. It's someone who can truly break down and explain the doctrines of scripture or why they believe what they believe. They can bring a defense of the gospel. They can bring a defense of the word of God. It doesn't, doesn't mean they're apologizing for scripture. It means that they're explaining it. They're breaking it down and systematically they can prove from scripture doctrinally why we believe what we believe. And that's why, and they base a lot of that. We have to, cause we're commanded. This is not a suggestion. Peter's commanding the churches in Asia Minor. What's he saying? Always be ready to explain the hope of the gospel that's within you. Why should we have such a hope? Why, why does the word of God promise these things? What is it we stand on? And I think a, a lot of that, thank you, Oscar. Oscar said, my wife and I are so grateful for this Miracle Word Kids because our daughter has gotten so, so much into daily Bible reading. Thank you, Jesus. That's exactly what we are looking for. And I love Oscar and his wife. They're great, great man and woman of God. But that's exactly what our prayer was. Lord, use this so that kids get hungry for scripture, so that kids become strong, smart, and set apart. We want to see our children rising up in the strength of the anointing. And we want to see our kids uh, getting hungry for the things of God. And so we're commanded, and this is why I'm going over these things on Bible study today, is that ultimately we're commanded as Christians to always be ready to explain why we believe what we believe and the hope that lies within us. So very important. And uh, I know this will be an important teaching that we'll archive and keep for people because I know it's, I know it was a little bit more in depth today. It needed to be because these five things, I think all of us really should be doing these five, 
these five types of Bible study. Once again, topical Bible study, where you pick a topic and go deep on it. Uh, and then word studies, which will overlap with topical. They'll overlap with book studies. Number three, biogra- biographies or biographical study of, a, of an individual in the scripture. Study the books of the Bible and go deep. Use a study Bible to study the books of the Bible. Use commentaries on a book of the Bible. Right now I'm going through Romans verse by verse. I mean like, and looking at about a bunch of uh, other material, historical material, uh, commentaries, going through like that. Um, and then of course, doctrinal studies where we are studying why we believe what we believe. Extremely important. I want to pray for those of you that are watching here at the end of this broadcast that God would ignite in you a love for his word and a strong desire to go deep in studying his word. I, I, it's one of my biggest things. And of course, you, you can probably tell the passion that I have for this subject uh, because I, I so love the word. I so love people studying the word. want to see people study the word. But we're not going to have strong Christianity if we don't have Christians strong in the word. You can quote me on that. Put it, in the, put it as a comment inside the comments. We won't have strong Christianity if we don't have Christians who study the word. You can quote me on that. We won't have strong Christianity if we don't have Christians who study the word. I'll say it one more time because I believe it that much. We won't have strong Christianity if we don't have Christians who study the word. No question about it. No question about it. That's why I think the seeker-sensitive church movement was demonic. I honestly do. I don't believe it was from God. I believe it was a a, a deception for leaders that thought it was going to be the right way to go about winning the loss, and it was a mistake. It was a big mistake. And that's why I'm praying for every one of you that are watching and listening, that God gives you a hunger and a desire to go deep and to study uh, His Word daily and go after it with everything you've got. Father, I pray for every person watching and listening. I pray that from this day, that you would put a fire in their spirit, a hunger to get deep in studying your word, to have a love, put a love in every one of us, a love for your word, a desire to always, to know what you say, to study what you say, to hear what you say, and to be disciplined and responsible to rightly divide the word of God. Don't let us be uh, flippant with your word. Don't let us be irresponsible with your word, but let us rightly divide the word of God so that we can not only uh, be built up in our personal lives, but we can always explain to those who have questions why we believe what we believe. So very important. We thank you, Lord, for giving that to us. We declare we have it. And we will discipline ourselves to be in your word every single day in Jesus' mighty name. We give you praise, honor, and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, before I go on this Breakthrough Friday, uh, I want to encourage you to sow a seed. I'm leaving again tomorrow to head to Rockford, Illinois um, to preach the gospel for the week. The whole family's going. Carolyn's going to be there. Uh, The kids, everybody's going. And uh, we're going to be there Sunday through Friday. All the details on the website. We'd love to see you there if you can get there. I've already heard from some of the Victory Tribe. We're coming. We're coming to the meetings. And then the week after at West Virginia camp meeting, uh, we want to see you there. But I want to encourage you to sow a seed today by faith. Some people have already done it. You've already sown your seed. Those of you watching, sow a seed by faith. Step out. 
partner with us. Things are changing for the better in America. Let me say, if you think people aren't hungry, go look at the pictures on Instagram from last week in Imlay City, Michigan. Look at the pictures from a couple weeks before in uh, uh, Shelby Township, Michigan. If you think people aren't hungry, explain how on like a Monday night and a Tuesday night and a Wednesday night, when people could be anywhere else, people are still locked in their houses for the lockdown. People could be anywhere else. Explain why they're packing the house of God on midweek services to come and hear the word of God and get into the Holy Ghost. You know why? Because they're hungry. People are hungry for a move of the Holy Ghost. And I'm telling you, we're seeing God move everywhere. And you're a part of that as the victory tribe. That's why I love you. Partner with us, stand with us uh, on a monthly basis and watch what God will do. You can see on the screen and go to miracleword.com and sow right on the website. You can set up a monthly seed to stand with us every single month as we're um, preaching the gospel uh, around the world on television, around the nation, and as we're traveling everywhere we're going. And then on these broadcasts, everything we're doing, we're gearing it to win souls. You know what made me really excited? And I understand we had first time salvations and rededications, but it, it just stirred me up that even last week, this week in Imlay, every service, we had 20, 30 people coming to the altar for salvation. It was powerful. I mean, it's, it stirred me up to see people coming to Christ. It was truly wonderful. And so you're a part of that. And I say, thank you. And uh, all the information's on the screen. You can use cash app, PayPal, hashtag donate. You can use Zelle to do transfers, miracleword.com, however you want to do it. And for those of you sowing in the month of April, we're going to be sending you this book by Smith Wigglesworth on ever increasing faith. It's our gift to those that are partnering at $85 or more. Uh, this month. And then of course, if you're sowing a thousand dollars or more, uh, this month, we send what I'm holding today, what I've been using all day on the broadcast, the genuine leather life application study Bible. This is one of the greatest tools in my opinion for the Christian. We send this to you. I sign it to you. It's my way of saying, I love you. And I thank you for standing with us. And then of course, this is brand new, but we're putting it together. Now the elite study pack for people that are sowing $5,000 or more, and it's all three study Bibles and two, two books on how to study the scripture effectively. Knowing scripture by R.C. Sproul and how to read the Bible for all it's worth uh, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. It will bless you and teach you and you'll literally be built up to, to go deeper in the word than you ever have before. I'm putting all those things in because in my opinion, that's five tools that will put you in, in like the top 1% of people that are studying uh, the scripture. Help you immensely. I love you so much. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing you in person. We've got all kinds of stuff going on. Miracle Word Kids, new videos every week. This week was a great one again uh, for Miracle Word Kids. And uh, Maddie and Maddie, I believe we're on this week for insecurity. <laughs> We, we call her Big Maddie because we got confused. A lot of times, Maddie, you see her in the picture on the screen. She's, uh, she babysits as well. She'll sometimes come watch the kids, and she interns here at Miracle Word. Uh, but Maddie Perez was on the video with my Maddie. And so we got, when Maddie was even smaller, uh, we, we call it big, big, big Maddie, Little Maddie. So you got the Maddies are on. We love Maddie Perez. She did a great job. And all those, by the way, I encourage you to download our free app because we have a one-stop shop for your kids. Everything is in the app. 
And you know what's interesting? It's like your kids probably do the same. Mom, can I have your phone? Dad, can I have your phone? Mom, can I have your phone? Dad, can I have your phone? Give them the phone and open it up to the Miracle Word app. All the kids' videos, the Bible studies, everything is located right there inside the app, along with tons of other stuff. All of our television programs are going up in there, tons of videos. We've got all kinds, 24-hour radio, all, it's been redesigned, it's been revamped, all of it's there to bless you, uh, and, and you need to get it. It's absolutely free. Just search Miracle Word in your app store and get it on your phone or tablet, uh, and it'll be great. Today, don't forget, it's Friday, which means 2 p.m. Carolyn will be back doing her broadcast today. Uh, you do not want to miss this. Uh, Wednesday was the first one ever, and she's launching out two broadcasts a week when we're home. And uh, that's Wednesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't miss it. I love you guys. Thank you for hanging with me today. Go back, rewatch this one, share it with somebody. Bless them. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you in Rockford. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.